You're listening to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture, and ideas in Denmark. I'm your host, James Clasper. Regular listeners may have noticed that there hasn't been a new episode since December, but there's a good reason for that. You see, I was planning to put out the final two episodes of the season last month. As fate would have it, though, my daughter was born four weeks early, and so I've had my hands full with 5am feeds, dirty nappies, and inexplicable bouts of crying. All of it, of course, against the backdrop of a deadly pandemic. Still, there's nothing quite like a spot of social distancing and self-isolation to focus the mind and to provide time to work on a podcast episode. And so, here we are. Moreover, as my thoughts inevitably turn to raising my daughter in Denmark and to the country's education system in particular, that's in part where the remainder of season two will take us. And we begin by heading to a truly unorthodox school just up the road from me in Copenhagen. From Greta Thunberg's school strike to the Fridays for the Future movement, there's no shortage of children taking a stand against climate change. But while their activism takes place outside the school gates, some say that what kids are taught while they're at school is just as important, if not more so. In fact, at one school in Denmark, tackling climate change means preparing its pupils for an uncertain future and teaching them how to build a sustainable society. On a recent weekday afternoon, I found a dozen children sitting in a circle when a bell rang. But instead of rushing to their next class, the children simply closed their eyes. Raise your hands when you can no longer hear a sound, said their teacher. And he was holding a pair of bronze symbols, the kind you might find in a Buddhist temple or perhaps a yoga class. And one by one, the children's hands went up. You see, at the Green Free School in Copenhagen, educating children for an uncertain future and preparing them for a world affected by climate change begins with putting them in the right frame of mind, quite literally. Classes here often start with mindfulness training. What do kids need to learn in order to step into this transition that we're going to go through, the green transition? That's Danish filmmaker Fear Ambo, who founded the Green Free School in 2014 with American translator Karen McLean. They need to learn to be courageous and they need to be able to make uh, NGOs or make businesses, but it all has to be according to the planet's balance. So they need to learn some very basic things about the planet and about how we as human beings uh, exist together. So we, we couldn't really see that happening in the school system. So it was that, that's why we founded the school from scratch. Unlike the country's regular state-funded schools, the Green Free School, which has about 200 pupils aged 6 to 15, puts sustainable living at the very heart of its syllabus. At first glance, there's nothing unusual about the school. It occupies four inconspicuous buildings in Amma, a post-industrial neighbourhood southeast of Copenhagen's city centre. Only a woodshed flanking a paint-daubed playground hints at a very different kind of institution. Indeed, creativity is a cornerstone of the school's philosophy. Its main building, made entirely of sustainable materials, houses a workshop where pupils learn to sew 
and use materials like wood, clay, wax, metal and plastic. They also learn how to compost, repair bicycles and collect rainwater. Ambo says she was inspired to launch the school after seeing the kind of thinking she believes is necessary to build a sustainable society. I was working on this biodynamic farm and I saw how everything worked in systems, that everything was sort of dependent on each other and that the whole way of um, living our lives in silos, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense if you think of yourself as someone who, who lives on this little planet that's big of a huge cosmos. Then I just thought, ah, I don't want my kids to do the same mistakes. I want them to have a, a wider perspective on the world. I want them to experience that they are part of humanity and not just part of my you know, family. I couldn't put them into a place every day where they were being taught the opposite of what I thought that they needed to be taught. At the Green Free School, the children work together in small groups, doing hands-on projects that are supervised by several teachers and span different subjects. For example, the children might learn how to forage edible mushrooms, then practice drawing them, before heading into the kitchen to make mushroom soup. You don't see a lot of teachings going on where there's a, there's a grown-up at a blackboard and the kids are sitting by their chairs with their tables. We don't do that a lot. We do it a bit because sometimes you need uh, to, to be able to write something on your paper. But a lot of the time we try to take them out of that concept that learning only is when you sit at a table and look at a grown-up that tells you things you need to remember. One thing that's important is that they know how to grow their own food. They know what it takes to make uh, vegetables for soup and they, they know the whole process of planting the seeds and uh, watching it over the summer and harvesting in the autumn and how to make food out of what they planted in the spring. So that's a very natural thing to learn. Despite its quirkiness, setting up the school was easy. While most schools in Denmark are publicly run, anyone can set up a private, free school, with the state covering about three-quarters of its costs, and the rest being made up by fees. Tuition at the Green Free School costs 2,600 Danish kroner a month, about 350 euros, and it sets aside at least 5% of its budget to provide bursaries to children whose parents can't afford the fees. Ambo says that that guarantees that pupils come from a wide range of socio-economic backgrounds. By law, a free school must follow the Danish national curriculum to make sure that people study history, maths and science. But otherwise, it's permitted to devise its own syllabus, which is what allows the Green Free School to teach topics like urban farming and spotting greenwashing. Companies say that we are sustainable because this and this, and these kids, they need to be able to see through this because we don't have time for that. We don't have time for following uh, big corporations that call themselves sustainable when it's just 1% of what they do that's sustainable. We, we really have to um, make demands and be part of this transition and feel that we are able to make these demands or even make them ourselves, the transitions. The Green Free School isn't the only educational institution in Europe with an eco-friendly syllabus. 
One high school in Berlin, for instance, teaches students about the importance of species and ecosystems. But the Green Free School is arguably unique in combining its pedagogical methodology, design thinking meets project-based learning, with sustainability and education around the green transition. Of course, the school has emerged against a favourable backdrop. Denmark, and Copenhagen in particular, has taken bold steps to combat climate change. Last December, the Danish parliament passed a climate law committing the country to reduce carbon emissions to 70% below 1990 levels by 2030. Still, the school's founders have faced some hurdles. The site that Amber and McLean chose for it was once one of the most toxic locations in Copenhagen, having been polluted with chemicals used to clean ships. A drawback, they turned to their advantage. We decided to make it into part of the curriculum so we learn about what kind of trees and plants can actually um, remove chemicals from the, from the earth and, and how, how, do we, how do we go about that a lot of us live in places that are tainted by the old industrial way of thinking. How do we transform it? So uh, we're here now, and uh, if we can make a green school in one of the most poisonous spots in Copenhagen, then anyone can do it. While the school provides more structure in its teaching today, Amber admits it isn't ideal for children with major learning difficulties or severe autism. Moreover, its students don't sit exams or take tests, which can come as a shock to some parents. To sceptics, though, Amber has a ready response. For me as a parent, I think that I can't afford to the risk that my children don't, um, don't have the, the courage or don't feel that they're part of this, uh, the green transition that we're going to go through. I don't want them to sit in the back seat. I want them to be in the front and that I want them to feel that they know what to do when climate change hits us. Because it, it's, it's doing a little bit now in Denmark, it's going to be wilder and it's already crazy in other parts of the world. And I don't want them to be scared. I want them to, of course, worry, because there is a lot to worry about, but I want them to be able to, to do things instead of just sitting and waiting for other people to do things. Seeing the Green Free School up close, I don't imagine there's any danger of that by encouraging its pupils to take risks, be creative, and think for themselves. The school appears to be putting them not just in the front seat, but behind the wheel with a fully charged battery. The great uncertainty, of course, is the road ahead. Ambo, though, remains optimistic. Well, to me, I think that it's a success if they graduate and they are very curious. They really want to learn more about the world and they are, you know... uh, they feel that they can make choices, that they feel that they are free to, to work with what they want within a sustainable frame. Um, but I actually think that for me, success is when I go here on an everyday basis and I can see that they're interested in what they do and they, they, they have this spark of life. I think that's for me, that was actually one of the most important things is to keep that alive because all children have that, but we kill it <laughs> when they start in school and we start um, slowly taking all that imagination out of them. I really wanted to preserve that more and make it something that's a source that's really, really valuable 
that they they want to take part of society and they feel that they can do it. Of course, I would like it to grow, but most of all, I would like I would like it to be sort of a locomotive for young teachers who want to learn about this way of teaching and who can carry it out in other systems. Just imagine if all the kids on Amma, if they got together and started planting trees or throwing seed bombs around all of Amma, it would be a transition overnight. That was Fia Amber, one of the co-founders of the Green Free School in Copenhagen. Coming up in part two, we head across town to another institution that's decided to do its bit to help tackle climate change, a Lutheran church in Copenhagen's northern suburbs. Religion and science haven't always made easy bedfellows, but amid increasingly dire warnings about the consequences of global warming, more and more faith communities are beginning to acknowledge the climate crisis. From sermons about climate justice to carbon-neutral church halls, a growing number of churches themselves are going green. And one country at the forefront of efforts to spread the climate gospel is Denmark. In the northern Copenhagen suburb of Bellahoy, the bells at the local Lutheran church are calling congregants to the Tuesday morning devotional service. At first glance, there's nothing remarkable about Bellahoy Kirk. A single-storey building founded in 1961, it boasts a large car park and a copper spire that's gone green with age, which is appropriate. Because look a little closer and you'll spot signs of the church's growing eco-friendliness. Consider the flowers used to decorate the altar. Instead of roses and tulips grown in Kenya, the church today prefers local seasonal flowers. And, like the bread and wine used in its Holy Communion services, they're organic. Or take the church's waste management system. Bellahoy recycles everything, from paper and cardboard to candles and mobile phones. We've also set up boxes to help people in the local area to, to bring in their glasses and their old candles and keys and other things so, so to help um, reuse some of the things that you might otherwise just throw away. That's yoga teacher Hannah Smith, who's leading the church's efforts to fight climate change. The crisis is here and what are we going to do about it? Well, one answer has been to sign up to Denmark's Grøn Kirke, or Green Church, scheme. Operated by the Danish National Council of Churches, the scheme encourages churches in the Scandinavian country to take concrete steps to reduce their carbon footprint. To participate, a church must meet at least 25 of the scheme's 48 criteria, which include reducing energy consumption, composting organic waste, holding meetings via Skype, to minimise travel and incorporating the climate crisis into sermons. It takes some work because you have to sit and, and go through, you know, a lot of the processes that you work with in the church. But it's a fairly simple checklist. And it's interesting to me how motivating it is to work with it because it's very specific. You know, you do these things, you can set your goals, you can tick them off. And it generates just lots of creativity. People are really engaged and want to do more and... It gives a good um, dynamic within the church and it, it, it can bring in 
people from the congregation that want to help. And so it's, it's a win-win thing. Uh, it's, uh, there's no reason not to do it, really. The Green Church Scheme was launched in 2008 by a Lutheran pastor on the Danish island of Funen. The scheme flourished in the wake of the COP15 United Nations Climate Conference, which took place in Copenhagen in 2009, but was then somewhat forgotten about. You see, the Lutheran Church in Denmark has traditionally stayed out of politics and avoided controversial issues. And back in 2009, many church leaders in Denmark still saw climate action as being part of a left-wing agenda. Not anymore. Climate change is no longer politically divisive, at least not in Denmark. Little wonder, then, that Denmark now has 232 green churches, 32 of which signed up last year alone. And they include Belhoikirke, which declared itself green in August and has fulfilled 39 of the 48 green church criteria. I asked Smith to show me one of the initiatives her green team had come up with, and she took me outside to the car park. But the areas that we do have, we have a little... Um, a little area here, and we have these signs down here to inform why it is... That here, the church has started to rewild a small patch of land on its property. A small sign reads, Ville Merville, a Danish tongue twister of sorts, meaning... Wild on purpose. Once inside again, I asked Smit to explain the thinking behind it. So it just grows now with whatever comes to it, and is very mildly trimmed and, and kept um, to show that even in the city... There are little little oases of, of green areas, and as a facilitator of such green areas, we also want to show that that can be sustainable. While Denmark is often seen as a leader in terms of climate action, similar green church movements also exist in countries like Germany, Norway, Sweden and the UK. Indeed, the growth of green churches around the globe comes as faith communities increasingly acknowledge climate change. In June 2019, for example, Pope Francis declared a global climate emergency. Amid such dire warnings, supporters of the Green Church movement believe religion has an important part to play. What, what role do we as churches have then to, to talk to the despair that people might feel, the um, apathy, the hope, the longing? The, there are lots of perspective, ethical perspective, moral perspectives that we as church also can sort of engage in and, and, and try to put words to or music to or, or just even give space and silence to, to be with. Mind you, there's not a lot of silence at Bella Hoikirka's regular Sunday service. That's because it typically includes several traditional Danish hymns a couple of readings from the New Testament, and plenty of contemporary music. One of four priests at Balohoikirke, Pastor Louise Minko, led the service. Despite her church's green church status, her sermon stayed on more traditional grounds. Later, though, she said there was no question the church had its part to play in the climate crisis. We have a responsibility, and we always have had that. But it's just changed because it's so much uh, a topic in the, in the news. Um, I always think that we have a, a responsibility because it's God's creation, and we have a responsibility for the earth and the environment as well as people. So I think it's like, 
Of course we have to do something about it. Minko says she discussed the environment in the sermons she delivered during creation time, a month-long period in autumn when many churches in Europe promote sustainability. In general, though, she believes that actions speak louder than words. I think for me it's not a, a, a question of what we're doing inside the church at the sermons. It's, a, it's also a question about how we're living in generally. But it's uh, important for me to, to say that we're not going to be like, you have to do like this. We're not going to be like uh, teachers telling people what to do and what to think. Not at all. For us, it's a way of living and a way of thinking about how to take care of the environment and then being a good role model for the people coming to church. Of course, the hymns in the classic Danish songbook used at Bello Højkirke and at churches across Denmark were written long ago. But many have since acquired greater emotional resonance in the face of climate change, like the much-loved Daily a Jorden, or The Earth is Lovely, which Bello Højkirke's pianist played at the end of Sunday service. While keeping the earth lovely may not require divine intervention just yet, for the likes of Hannah Smith, churches in Denmark and beyond still have a role to play. I mean, it's not so much about whether or not there's a crisis or not. It's more about what do we do and does it make a difference and, and that sort of thing. But we need to do something, because just in, in doing something, there's hope. And that brings us to the end of the episode. It was written, produced and hosted by me, James Clasper. And the sound design is by two Copenhagen-based musicians, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. Many thanks again for listening. I hope you found it inspiring. And stay tuned for the final episode of the season. 